listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. And filling in for Evan today is me, Tamara Cherry, in Regina, Saskatchewan, bidding you a good morning if you're in my part of the country or further west, and a good afternoon if you are amongst our Eastern listeners. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'll be in the seat uh, tomorrow and next week as well. And if I'm going to start out by saying, because I always forget to say this, that if you know you can't listen to the whole show, but you wish you could, you can always listen back or catch any interview you may have missed by listening to the Evan Solomon Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe to our show to keep up with all the latest news you need to know. I look forward to taking what I hope to be a lot of calls from you guys today. And uh, of course, text messages at 7, 10, 10, starting with this first topic. A dozen years ago, my husband and I purchased our first home, a small condo in downtown Toronto. Every extra penny that we came across or we earned went on to the mortgage. And five years and one kid later, we had enough equity in that little condo to sell that property and purchase our second home a two-story house with an attached garage and big backyard in Ajax just outside Toronto. A year or two after that, we took a big step out of our comfort zone and pulled equity out of our house to put a down payment on another single-family home, this one a little further from downtown Toronto. We converted it into two units and have been renting it out ever since, along with another home that we purchased and renovated the following year. Now, Some people may take issue with this. Some people may argue that by using the equity in our home to buy other homes, we are unfairly having an advantage and and taking the opportunity of home ownership away from someone else. As a small-time landlord, I don't see it that way. My husband and I are excellent landlords, and the people uh, that we rent out to have no interest in buying property. They just want an affordable, safe place to live which we provide. Not only that, but these investments also made me more comfortable in leaving my job in Toronto about, oh goodness, two and a half years ago now. Not only leaving my job, but leaving my pension and becoming a small business owner. Well, there's increasingly a new type of investor in town, the hedge fund manager. It's become a growing problem for people trying to get into the real estate market south of the border and one that may be taking shape here in Canada. Larry Scott spoke with WPTV in West Palm Beach, Florida earlier this year. He was looking for a starter home for his growing family. And 10 times he tried, but kept losing out. After the first one, we found out it was conventional in cash. And then people say, oh, they can close quicker or, hey, I'm sorry, they paid in cash. And that was the biggest thing. And as we've seen in various Canadian cities, in a wild real estate market, cash is king. And these days, there are more buyers ready with cash, but not all of them are shopping for themselves. Here's WPTV's Matt Sesney. Online real estate brokerage Redfin studied the hottest real estate markets and found in the third quarter of last year, investors bought 18% of the homes with three out of four single-family houses. And in West Palm Beach's market... The number was 15%, an 8% hike from a year ago. Realtor Jeanette Womble told News 19 in Columbia, South Carolina, that many of her clients are competing against a pile of cash and investment firms. 
Their offers are always cash. They do a very short due diligence. They always buy as is, and they typically close in about two weeks. News 19 reported that according to Redfin, investors bought 20% of homes that sold in the first quarter. And fast-growing states like South Carolina are prime pickings for these firms. They're buying a lot of houses that are located in very good school districts, and they're turning around after closing, and they're offering these properties for rent. The Wall Street Journal reported earlier this year that in some states, homeowners associations are pushing back against investors because they're upset that rental properties are taking over their neighborhoods. Here's housing reporter Will Parker in April. In a lot of states, the homeowners associations have pretty broad powers to set rules, not only about how people have to maintain their properties, but what they can do with them. We've seen rules against short-term rentals, Airbnbs and that sort of thing become very common. But there's also the power often to restrict long-term rentals. And the way a lot of these communities are looking to do it is to put in, for example, an owner occupancy rule. So if you buy a house in one of these communities, you have to live there for one, two, or even three years before you'd be allowed to rent it. Something like that pretty much automatically excludes an out-of-state corporate investor, right? A large company is not going to move into a house, so to speak. Fishers, Indiana was named by Money Magazine as one of the best places to live in the United States, but home hunters there are consistently being outbid. Real estate investment groups are buying houses in cash and renting them out, in some cases, to the very people who hoped to own them. Here's Antonia Hilton with NBC News. In January, 33% of all homes purchased in the U.S. were bought by investors, often Wall Street-backed companies with multi-billion dollar funds. In some neighborhoods of Fisher, Indiana, investors own more than half the homes, frustrating Fisher's mayor, Scott Fadness. Have you been able to talk to any of these companies? It's very difficult. So take, for instance, if you have a high grass and weed issue, a code enforcement issue. I mean, if they own 4,000 homes, who is the individual that you can go talk to about a specific problem? Are these the sorts of stories we'll be hearing in Canada? Well, the president of one of the country's largest real estate investment firms says that while the idea of big investors buying single-family homes is just in its infancy stages here, it is a trend worth watching. REMAX Canada president Christopher Alexander thinks the notion could catch on in Canada, especially given the recent dip in many housing markets. What could this mean for the average home buyer? Christopher Alexander will join us in the next segment to discuss. And then I want to hear from you. Is this something the government should be getting ahead of? Or do you see a silver lining in billion dollar hedge funds buying up a neighborhood and creating more rental units, which of course, as many of us know, are also in great demand in many of the, uh, in many neighborhoods across this country. I already see a lot of uh, text messages coming coming in. Uh, one person writing that there is a big investment firm uh, buying up homes in Burlington and Oakville, two cities west of Toronto, uh, separating them into two rental units, uh, and our government is doing nothing about it. So presumably this is a listener who is not happy with this. Another person saying, nothing wrong with property ownership using equity to own more property. It's smart. So that is what my husband and I have done, but is there a difference if it is a billion dollar hedge fund that is purchasing up 
not just one or two properties, but per, perhaps hundreds or thousands of properties like we've seen uh, south of the border. So we're going to be getting into that issue coming up after the break, and I'm sure it will be one that will spur all sorts of calls and texts. So make sure that you keep those coming in. I'll throw out the number in the next segment. Plus, should magic mushrooms, as they're more commonly known illicitly, be legal in Canada? People who need them can get them, but they've got to jump through several hoops to do so. Well, a new lawsuit aimed at the federal government is challenging the charter and could pave the way for psychedelics, including psilocybin, which is the actual term for magic mushrooms, to be legalized in Canada. I'm going to speak with two people at the center of this charter challenge in the next hour. I feel very confident that this is a conversation you will not want to miss. One of the people we'll be speaking with is somebody who uh, years ago was diagnosed with stage four cancer uh, and has in the past relied on uh, psilocybin to get him to get him through some of what he's been struggling with. Uh, and the other person is somebody who is behind this charter challenge, helping fundraise uh, so that the eight plaintiffs are able to take their, their grievances to the government. Also in the next hour, it's Wednesday, which means we convene the war room panel to discuss all the big political stories of the week. As, may, as you may or may not be aware, I think many of you may not be aware because it hasn't been that big in the news. Three out of the five conservative leadership candidates will be gathering for their final debate tonight. Do you care? Do our panelists care? I will ask them. How about the fact that Pierre Poiliev has raked in $4 million in donations? Is that something we should be talking about? Well, we'll talk to our panelists about it coming up in the next half hour. Again, I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. If you miss any part of the show, you can always listen back or catch any interview uh, on the Evan Solomon Show podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe to our show to keep up with all the latest news you need to know and listen to the Evan Solomon Show on your smart speaker. Maybe that's where you're listening to us right now. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Evan Solomon Show. We'll have much more coming up after the break. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to the Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan this week is me, Tamara Cherry. I'll be in this chair today, tomorrow, and every Evan Solomon Show day next week as well. Chris Arsenault in, uh, at CBC is reporting today that one in four recent houses sold in the U.S. has been bought by institutional investors, a larger share than ever before. I played a bunch of clips from various American news stories in the last segment, and basically they all tell the same story. There are There seem to be many people who are struggling to get into the housing market because they're being outbid by faceless investors who are being backed by billion-dollar hedge funds. And our next guest thinks that this is something that we should be paying attention to here in Canada. His name is Christopher Alexander. He's the president of Remax Canada. Christopher, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks very much for having me. So I, I just want to start by asking, what do we know about how many single-family homes in Canada are owned by investment firms? Not a lot. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. There's really limited data right now, and... There has been a lot of buzz since 
a few marquee investment firms like BlackRock made announcements earlier this year that they'd be entering the Canadian marketplace and buying homes uh, en masse. Uh, But since that announcement, I haven't seen or heard uh, of many transactions. Do, do you like would there usually be announcements to go along with this or could this stuff be happening sort of below the surface and we don't know we wouldn't know have any idea that it's going on uh that's possible but you know it's important to remember that uh, investing in real estate has been almost a canadian pastime certainly over the last decade or so and so you're also dealing with local and um regular Canadian institutional investors as well. Um, But I'm not as concerned as some people are with this emerging trend. I mean, a lot of the one in four homes in the U.S. were bought by iBuying companies, which are real estate platforms that allow for all cash offers sight unseen. And... Uh, they're labeled as investors, but eventually those homes do hit the resale market, uh, and you know your everyday consumer has an opportunity to buy them. But but isn't that driving up home prices? You know, mm, if that transaction didn't take place, wouldn't they be getting those houses at a lower price? Not always. Um, usually, when you buy sight unseen, as a seller, you have to be aware that you're not opening yourself up to a broader market. And so oftentimes they are, you know, sold at, at a, a lower price than what you would have got on a traditional, uh, working with a traditional agent or broker. But uh, over, overall, it's, you know, that's been happening in the U.S. for half a decade now. And the real challenge that we have uh, uh, on both sides of the border is a supply challenge. And uh, even with the institutional investment firms buying properties, um, it, it's not at a pace that is alarming to me because we just, especially in Canada, we don't have the means to really keep pace with the amount of demand we've been seeing for the last you know, 15 years. Something I, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around, and uh, for anybody just joining us, we're speaking with Christopher Alexander, president of REMAX Canada, is a billion-dollar hedge fund is going to get a much bigger return flipping a $10 million commercial property than, say, a $500,000 or even $1 million uh, single-family home. So why are they entering this space in the U.S. And, and now, you know, beginning to see it happening in Canada? Because they see the forecasts of supply and demand. And on, in both countries, we have supply challenges and we don't have enough capacity to build enough homes to meet the demand. And, you know, in the U.S., this really started during the Great Recession in 2008-9. A lot of uh, big, wealthy investment firms started buying properties en masse and then renting them out to um, single families, multifamilies, and it, it just accelerated, and they just see a big uh, gap in overall demand versus what the amount of supply that we can see. So they see returns, and uh, that's why it's so appealing for them. One message I'm seeing come up on our text board is talking about uh, the fact that investor groups like rates uh, that manage housing 
are not transparent. For example, they nobody knows how well they treat tenants or, or manage property since uh, all we can see are their advertisements listing how happy their customers or investors are. What would you say to that? Is this an area that that should be under more scrutiny, that should have more transparency? I mean, we don't even have anywhere near the statistics that the Americans have in terms of how many how many single family homes are even owned by uh, investment firms here? I am a huge proponent and advocate for more transparency in real estate. Uh, I think there is a lot of information that would be very, very useful to the average consumer in Canada. And so I would support tremendously more transparency in in that regard. Uh, But, you know, I think... If you're a buyer or a renter and you're you're renting from a, a company that you you know don't have a lot of information on, do go the extra mile on doing your research before you decide to lease a property. Talk to, if you can, you know, talk to the local tenants, get their experience. But uh, this is kind of a whole new world, and I just encourage people to do as much research as they can and more than you would normally do in uh, normal and circumstances. It, it, the CBC story that I, in the CBC story that I referenced uh, at the beginning of this segment, the Canadian real estate association declined to comment. So did Royal LePage century 21 and Keller Williams didn't respond to requests for interviews by the reporter. Why do you think, why might the real estate sector not want to talk about this? Well, cause it's very limited data right now. And I think, um, you know, we have a lot of um, strength in the United States. I mean, our brand's got, you know, a tremendous amount of realtors in the U.S. as well as Canada. And so we're familiar with working with these these conglomerates um, more so than a, a Canadian company would be. So that might be why, but I really, I really don't know. I'm speculating. You, you mentioned BlackRock Investments earlier. Uh, last year, real estate investment firm Core Development Group announced plans to spend a billion dollars on single-family homes in mid-sized Canadian cities. This sparked a wave of outrage, particularly in the affordable housing advocacy community. How do you foresee uh, potentially increasing news of this nature being met by Canadians? Well, I think, you know, BlackRock... BlackRock is not the first American conglomerate or business that has looked at Canada and said, oh, gosh, that's an easy opportunity. Um, We're different here. Uh, Our industry is different. Our consumers are different. Our culture is different. And so uh, it wouldn't be the first time for a big company to make blanket statements like that. And so, you know, just for example, a a lot of uh, the institutional investment purchases in the U.S. are on a sub- $500,000 $500,000 sales price. That is, um, you know, our average sale price nationally is about 700000 So um, I think they're going to have their work cut out for them more than they were expecting. All right, Christopher Alexander, thank you so much for taking the time today. Christopher Alexander is the president of Remax Canada. And of course, we're talking about a trend that is increasingly making the headlines south of the border, and that is hedge fund managers buying up hundreds, if not thousands of properties, single family homes. And uh, some people are upset because they feel that this is pricing them out of the market. Well, is this something that you are worried about here in Canada? I want to take your calls coming up after the break. Give us a call 
1-855-633-1010. Again, 1-855-633-1010. Or you can send me a text message as many of you have already begun doing uh, at 71010. Uh, I want to know, do you support this or does this worry you? Do you think this will further strain supply and availability amidst our uh, our affordable housing crisis across the country? I'm Tamara Cherry. In for Evan Solomon. Give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. I'll take those calls after the break. As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. Oh boy, are the phone lines lighting up. And of course, I should point out, I'm not Evan Solomon. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. Thanks for listening. Phone lines lighting up, text board lighting up on this topic. I want to hear from you uh, whether this topic is one that you support, one that it wor- that makes you worry. Uh, big investment firms are buying a larger share of U.S. homes than ever before, a trend that could catch on in Canada. CBC reporting this morning that one in four recent houses sold in the U.S. were bought by institutional investors. So thinking hedge fund managers with billions of dollars behind them. I just spoke with Christopher Alexander, president of Remax Canada. He says not many single family homes in Canada are owned by investment firms so far. He says the real challenge we have on both sides of the border is the supply challenge. Even with the institutional investment firms buying properties, it's not at a pace that is alarming to me because we just, especially in Canada, we don't have the means to really keep pace with the amount of demand we've been seeing for the last 15 years. I asked Christopher Alexander why investment firms are entering this space. In both countries, we have supply challenges and we don't have enough capacity to build enough homes to meet the demand. And, you know, in the U.S., that's really started during the Great Recession in 2008-9. A lot of uh, big, wealthy investment firms started buying properties en masse and then renting them out. I should point out, however, that Uh, well, I I said yesterday that not many single-family homes in Canada are owned by investment firms. We actually really don't know because Statistics Canada, uh, various institutions in Canada that that follow real estate, they don't keep track of these numbers. We don't know how many single-family homes are being bought and flipped uh, by these big investment firms. So I want to hear from you, 1-855-633-1010. Send me a text message at 71010. Let's go straight to the phone lines. Uh, Andre, you're calling from Hamilton. What do you think? Uh, yeah, no, I've, I've followed this and it's been on my mind a whole bunch. Um, and I would say I absolutely disagree with the Remax guy you had on. He even gave the point of why it's a problem as not a problem when he said that it's a supply and demand issue. We don't have enough supply here for Canadian residents to buy homes, and it's driving the price through the roof. I go against my conservative ways, and I'm a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, but I believe no one should be looking at housing as an investment, period, full stop. Put a 20% of the assessed residential value tax on any home, any any home that is not lived in by the purchaser, period. 
You, you, you said, Andre, that you've been following this closely. Uh, have you been trying to get a house yourself or you've been trying to get into the housing market or you just have concern for others who are? Uh, we have looked at it for many, many years and then just gave up. Uh, at the time, it was essentially one of the issues was the down payment required. And I think we were, at the time, between the two of us, husband and wife here with two kids and the dog and all that guys, you know, I think we were making like 110 at the time combined. Uh, now we're much better off, but at the same time, it's to put together, if you had $80,000 in the bank, the bank just tells you, no, that's not enough. They, you can be approved for, and at the time, we, we had a bunch, and uh, the bank told us we needed, uh, we'd be approved for a mortgage of like $200,000 with 80000 out. I couldn't understand it. Yeah, now, of course, uh, house prices, especially in Hamilton, are a lot higher than they were. Thank you, Andre, for your call. I'm, I'm going to go to John now in Montreal. John, how are you feeling about this? Province of Quebec, we have rent control. Uh, three four years ago, a few companies within Canada came into Quebec and they thought they could buy up anything they wanted, throw a coat of paint on it, increase the rent by 100%. Well, they got a rude awakening. Because we have a rental board, you have to uh, prove that you justify your increases by the amount of money you've spent to upgrade the property. You have to show the previous uh, renter's uh, rent, uh, the, the price they were paying. That has to be justified. So, you know, they, they went, uh, you know, they toddled off into the sunset. And uh, that's why Quebec has some of the lowest rental properties in Canada. That's, That's really, really interesting. interesting. I mean, that that certainly benefits uh, tenants, people who are renting yeah. homes. But but what yeah. are your thoughts on people who are trying to to purchase these homes and and having if, to compete if, against if, these hedge funds? If you're if you're the uh, the owner, this is a twenty year investment. This is not you know investing in the stock market where you get a quick return. You know, you're not. It can make be. It can be in certain in certain markets. I mean, look at the the increases we saw in places like the Greater Toronto area. I mean, we are seeing like thirty five percent year over year. People are making a killing. But you don't have rental uh, control there. That's the problem. Yep, you know, I've true. lived in rental units all my life, and uh, when it comes to increases, they got to spend the money to upgrade the uh, the property. They can't just. Say, oh, well, you know, I, I uh, painted the apartment. It has to be the entire property itself. And major renovations, balconies, windows, heating system, you know, then you're justified. And even then, the rental work comes out once a year, just before the renewals come up, and they make a suggestion of what the increases should be based on how you heat or whether you pay your electricity. All those things come into play, plus the cost of living. So, yeah, so, a lot so of owners are not happy. See, it would be interesting to see then, John, if the government does eventually start tracking these numbers of uh, big investors or investment firms that are buying single-family homes, if there's clusters of them outside of Quebec, because I imagine that would make it a lot less desirable for these investors. Well, we have our Thank you very much. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, everybody <laughs> no, has their problems. No, for, John, for I, I want to go back to the phone lines because Terry in Windsor has been waiting. And, and if anyone else wants to weigh in, it's one 1010 But Terry in Windsor, uh, how are you feeling about this issue? Uh, there are a lot of fingers in this pie. And, you know, you can't, you, you don't, uh, 
unless you have a scorecard, you don't know who's who's dipping into whose profits. You know, in our in in the city of Windsor, our problem is um, the absentee landlords seem to run run this city because uh, they're on. Uh, the uh, the property standards committee, so they're not going to hurt their friends who are on the um, on the um, the landlord committee or the landlord association within the city. And at one point, they did get caught uh, mucking up the system, and our mayor then decided that uh, he was going to get rid of that committee. Well, he did. Unfortunately, the bureaucrats who are in charge of appointing people just filled them back with absentee landlords all over again. So the the problem just stayed stayed the way it was. This is a a predatory business practice that uh, seems to go, you know, un unseen by by people that uh, should know better. And then you got, of course, you got your flippers that like to come from places like Toronto into the city of Windsor or Vancouver, mm-hmm. you know. And and you you've probably seen those uh, films where. Um, the money is coming from overseas into casinos, and they're going in one door and they're out through the other. So yeah. uh, a place like Windsor, unfortunately, um, is uh, having a, a great time with people saying, oh, the prices are up, the prices are up. Yeah, well, you're pricing out people who are, um, who are longtime residents within a certain area, and the sad reality is if you don't move out uh, with the profits, um, you're going to be taxed out by the city, so that's uh, that's only part of the problem. I hope uh, I hope that uh, informs you for for a bit there. Yeah, yeah, they, and I appreciate your call, Terry, and and everybody else who called in. Thank you. Lots of people texting in too. Uh, a lot of people texting in negatively um, towards this this idea of big investors uh, buying up these houses, calling it scary, uh, saying that they don't like the rentals going up in their neighborhood, uh, being bought up by these investors. Coming up after the break, um, a real feel-good story. Maybe you've done one of those home DNA tests. I know I have. And maybe you found something interesting about yourself. Maybe you found a a, a significant person in your life because of it. Well, we're going to talk to two young women who found just that, sisters from across the border. Coming up after the break, I'm Tamara Cherry, filling in for Evan Solomon this week and next. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Well, this next story, I have to thank my good friend and former colleague at CTV News Toronto, Scott Lightfoot, for I, I saw it last night and I couldn't resist bringing it to this national audience. I am Tamara Cherry filling in for The Evan Solomon Show. Have you ever taken one of those home DNA tests? I did one a few years ago and I didn't dig too close or too deep into it, but I did find out, you know, I'm this percentage of this, this percentage of this. I have ancestors from here and here. Well, two women on both sides of the border, one of them in Brantford, Ontario, and one of them in Minnesota, have found something very special through their DNA test, and that something is each other. They're sisters, and they're on the line with us right now. Carly McMaster, 28 years old from Brantford. Riley Hall, 26 years old from Minnesota. Both of you ladies, thank you for taking the time to, to, to share this wonderful story. Thank you so much. We're excited to be on. (laughs) 
Okay, so Carly, uh, just start this out for us. You you took one of these uh, DNA tests, submitted it to Ancestry.com. Where did it go from there? First, actually, maybe tell us why you were doing this and then where it went from there. Yeah, yeah. So I, I definitely um, wasn't looking for siblings. That wasn't really my first thought. Um, my dad had passed away um, a couple years prior, so I was just kind of looking. I know sometimes they say that you can kind of see, like, health stuff on there, things that might be hereditary. So I was mostly just looking for that um, and then just to kind of see where he came from because I didn't know too much about his background. Um, so it really was just to do that. And I actually didn't even buy the test. It was my boyfriend at the time who bought it, so I, I might not have even gone through with it if I didn't get it for like a Christmas present. Um, so yeah, yeah, I did it. And then um, Riley popped up not too long after. So Riley, meanwhile, you had already done this test. Why did you do the test? And, and where has it gone from there for you? Um, well, I had seen the test online. So I was very intrigued by them. And before I did them, my mom was like, oh, maybe I should tell her. Like she came from a sperm donor. So she told me, and I was like, wow, maybe if I do this test, I can finally have some siblings. While they also did health, which was very um, informative, I mostly just wanted siblings. So I did the test, and I saw when I got my results that a half-sibling popped up. And right after that, I had messaged Carly. Didn't say too much, but we kind of started talking a little after that. Okay, so what was that first reach out like, Riley? What did, what did you say to Carly when you sent her a message? Um, I didn't know if she knew that she had come from a sperm donor or if that would be the case. So I kind of just messaged her and I was like, hey, um, I just matched with you. Do you know how we could be related anyway? Um, do we have similar family members with like the same last name, like something like that? Because, of course, she was in a different country, so... Um, I kind of knew in the back of my mind that she could be another sibling. Carly, how did you take this news? Because you didn't know, from what I understand, that that uh, you were conceived through a sperm donor. Is that right? Yeah, no, I definitely didn't know. Um, when Riley reached out, I actually um, thought maybe she could have been related on my mom's side of the family. Um, that, that side of the family is huge, so that's kind of where my brain went to first. Um, and then I kind of was, like, giving Riley last names of maybe people that she might be related to. Um, I didn't even know where she was from yet. It basically was just like, hey, how's it going? These are the last names in my family. Um, are you related to any of them? Um, so... It wasn't really, there wasn't like a shock factor yet until we started digging deeper in. And then you found, and then you found that the, the, the link was indeed your father. Is that right? Um, yeah, yeah. So um, Riley did end up telling me that she was a sperm donor baby. Um, but since my dad had passed away, I thought maybe my dad was a sperm donor. Um, mm. And I, my, I didn't know. Um, and my mom didn't know how to tell me at the time um, because she hadn't really told anyone. Um, it was just it was just her and my dad that knew, so she she didn't know how to tell me at the time, and um, it took her a little while to break it to me. And and once she did, um, Riley and I just were both like, oh my gosh, like it was kind of a confirmation that we we were siblings. So you guys started talking frequently, I understand, and Riley, I understand you guys started to notice some similarities between each other. Yeah, um, it's. Oh my gosh, we have to make a list because the amount of times we get asked about similarities is crazy. But um, I noticed the one thing me and Carly have kind of the same is like our eyes look a lot alike. 
um, the way we talk with our hands. We have a lot of the same mannerisms. It's mostly, you can really tell in person more of the similarities. Wow. I, you know what, I, it's, it's like those shows that you've seen where identical twins have been separated at birth and then they finally come together and you're watching them and they just, they so remind you uh, of, of each other. But now this story, it just keeps getting more and more interesting because not only have you found each other, but you have found out uh, from what I understand that there are other siblings out there. Is that right, Carly? Yeah, so um, when Riley and I matched and started talking, there was another sibling on Ancestry as well that we reached out to, but um, she wasn't active on there. Like, it tells you the last time they were kind of on at the time. Um, So we kind of hit a dead end with her for probably, I think, a year, and then we decided maybe we'll do a little bit more digging, um, and we found her on Facebook and reached out there and then also reached out again through Ancestry. So we've had a bit of communications with her, um, nothing too crazy yet. And then Riley did the 23andMe and found a couple more siblings as well. Um, and we haven't had too many communications with them either. We're, we're taking things really slow because um, it is a, a tough subject for some people. So we want to make course. sure. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, of course. Well, especially <laughs> considering like you, Carly, you didn't re- you didn't know and, and your mom wasn't ready to tell you, um, nor had your dad been that that you were conceived through a sperm donor. So speaking of that sc- sperm donor, again, the story just continues to get more and more interesting. Riley uh, and Carly, you guys have been in contact with this sperm donor. I understand that he he had sort of checked the box upon donating sperm, indicating that he would be um, open to meeting his offspring. What has that been like? I, I'll open that up to either of you. I don't know who has been in contact with him. Um, I'll let Riley take it because she started kind of contacting him first, so she can go. <laughs> Um, so when I did 23 and me, um, me and Carly both agreed that I would just do it because if she did it, I mean, she would have the same matches as me. So, um, I did it hoping to find siblings and, or, uh, links to the donor. And when I got my results back, two siblings popped up and, um, the donor's brother and cousin. So I got in contact with them right away just to see if anything would work out. And then they told him about me, and then he reached out to me um, via Facebook and then email. And then we started talking on WhatsApp. I think it could have been the day after. It was so fast. But he's been great. It's, it's really fun talking to him. What have you learned, Riley, about how he came about this sperm donation? Um, he said that he was donating platelets. And he saw an ad for um, sperm donation, and he thought, well, if I can help people with the blood that I donate, I just want to keep helping people and help families and make families. And I think he said one thing that he really liked about meeting us is that when you donate blood, you can't really see the people you're helping, but he can see the people he's helping. Well, now with me and Carly, he's met us. He, He sees who he's helped. And I understand, I, I have to end it there because we're coming up against the break, but I understand you guys are going to be meeting him for the first time later this month in Ontario. Thank you so much for joining us today. Carly McMaster, Riley Hall, so happy for you and your wonderful discoveries. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. Coming up after the break, we convene our War Room political panel.
You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. And filling in for Evan today and the rest of the week and next week is me, Tamara Cherry, coming at you live from Regina, Saskatchewan. And it is Wednesday. You know what that means? It's time for the War Room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. Of course, this is the time of the week that we convene some of the best political thinkers and commentators in the country to discuss the big political stories of the week. Joining us today are Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data, Lindsay Maskell, Political Consultant and Former Advisor to Premier Dalton McGuinty, and David Mosscrop, Columnist for the Washington Post and author of Too Dumb for Democracy. Welcome, everybody. Hey, Tamara. Good afternoon. David, did I say your last name right? I was just telling our technical producer, I read you all the time, but I don't remember hearing your name spoken out loud. Is it Mosscrop? It's the post-truth era, so it doesn't really matter. You can say, oh, <laughs> that is, strictly speaking, correct, but it doesn't matter. It's whatever you whatever you want. It doesn't even matter. It matters, David. We're matters, all snowflakes okay. and we all care. So let's just make sure we're pronouncing everybody's names right. All right, well, you let's get indeed. started. Okay, good. Okay, so there is a debate happening tonight. Some people may be very well aware of this. Some people maybe not at all. And that's because only three out of the five conservative candidates vying for leadership uh, in that party are going to be appearing in tonight's debate. Those will be ex-Quebec Premier Jean Charest, rural Ontario MP Scott Aitchison, and Roman Baber, former political, a former provincial legislator who Doug Ford booted from caucus over his opposition to COVID-19 lockdowns. Tim Powers... Do you care? Do you care about this debate tonight? Will you be watching it? Oh, tomorrow I'm going to be carving a watermelon, finding a new rider's jersey, and getting ready to go to Mosaic Field to watch your team play. Uh, <laughs> I care more about that, uh, but I have to watch the debate tonight, so it's like a sentence I've agreed to serve for uh, for 75 minutes. Um, my overwhelming sarcasm aside, there will be Conservative Party members who care about this, uh, there will be Canadians outside the Conservative Party who will care about this. I mean, clearly Pierre Polyev and Leslie Lewis don't care about this. They're going to write $50,000 checks each not to go there. I think that's a bit arrogant on their behalf. Uh, but they're both confident in their own way that they don't need to be there. For the three that are there, it's, who, who? Uh, it's a bit of an opportunity. But, uh, you know, it's an opportunity to move up to number 45 on the Netflix show list you haven't watched yet. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay Maskell, who do you think will be caring tonight? Tim, Tim just mentioned there are some conservatives, other people who will be interested. Who do you think is going to be watching tonight? Well, those that are concerned, I mean, look, they did survey the party members and they wanted this debate. So there are pre-existing, probably more centrist and progressive conservatives that are concerned that they're not um, participating in the process and just see this as no upside for them with the fact that they could be on the attack or, you know, the, the chance of making a mistake, considering that we've all seen lots of this debate content, and especially when it has so much pandering a bit more to the far right of content that comes out during a general election, right? So why I can, I'm sure that it was worth a $50,000 check to avoid another bad debate performance that results in being uh, some fun content for your opposition during the general election. 
Yeah, it's interesting to note, uh, you know, Tim, you said you wanted to watch the Ryder game tonight. Um, Pierre Poiliev is not going to be in tonight's debate, but he is in Saskatchewan, so perhaps he will be as well. David, uh, do you do you think that this debate matters when the clear front runner is not going to be a part of it? Well, I guess let, let's try a thought experiment. You know, imagine you're watching the NHL playoffs and they decide to hold a playoff game after a team has won the Stanley Cup. I guess the question would be, would that game matter? Yeah. <laughs> and I think the answer is no. Uh, but I guess, you know, uh, or you could say, look, it's the bronze medal game. People watch the bronze medal hockey game, right? So there must be mm-hmm. some interest. But I do think if it's <laughs> People anything. People who it's really love medal. hockey. <laughs> yeah, who really love hockey. Or maybe, you know, sometimes the bronze medal is a great, is great news for a country. It's a great showing for some countries. And I suspect that this is sort of like a bronze medal game. Uh, you know, after seeing the fundraising numbers and the membership numbers from the Polyev campaign, it, I was just writing about this this morning, it seems to be a done deal. And so watching this is a lot like, a, you know, the bronze medal game. But hey, so sometimes those are great games. So, David, let's pick up on that. Um, you know, we're going to be the winner's going to be announced September 10th for this leadership race. But I was really interested reading the uh, the Toronto Star story about the amount of money that Pierre Poiliev has managed to raise. Uh, I believe it was four million dollars. And that's more than any conservative candidate in, in recent history. Second up was Sheree, who who brought in almost one point four million dollars. Nobody else trailing anywhere closely Behind that, uh, David, just given that you said you were writing about this this morning, what do you think that says about this conservative leadership race and the, the, I guess, the sentiments that Pierre Poiliev has been tapping into? Well, as you mentioned, he raised an awful lot of money. In fact, raised more than all of his competitors combined. And, and it wasn't a handful of donations. He did it over an extraordinary number of donations, too. So it's not just big donors donating. It's a lot of people giving him a, a lot of money. And so it's obviously it's resonating. So uh, I've been saying this for months. He's tapped into an anger and frustration and anxiety that has been sort of percolating for a long time in the Canadian public. And he's, he's tapped into it and he's mobilizing these folks and it's working extraordinarily well. And you've got to give him credit for that and give his campaign credit for that, even though, and this is a huge uh, addendum, uh, I don't. He, I think he's writing checks his butt can't cash. So eventually, you've got to you've got to try to you know, pay the the price for that. I don't think he can. So I think in the long run, this is going to lead to a lot of trouble for him. But in the short run, for winning the leadership, which is the goal right now, uh, I think it's working extraordinarily well. Do you do you think though? Do you do I, I, Lindsay? I'll put this to you. Do you think that this will will lead to a lot of trouble for Poiliev down the road, or could it lead to a lot of trouble for? all the people that have been donating to do you, do you think that he'll care like i sort of liken this to to the support that president trump before he was president garnered before uh you know he was running for presidency and now again as as he seems poised to do again lindsay do you think that uh Poiliev will suffer down the road so when i look at fundraising i kind of do think a bit this a bit bigger picture in the sense that you know, in the last ele- last two elections, uh, the Conservatives actually out-fundraised the Liberals in both elections. So it is not, uh, this being news doesn't feel like news to me in the sense that it sort of does feel like status quo. And they are just trying to write the story that this is an inevitable result uh, of Pierre being the winner based on fundraising numbers. And that may be true within their party, but that has not been true for many elections in uh, in Canadian general elections. But I will say that there is a there is an issue that when he is definitely tapping into, as David said, the the anger and fear that some people are feeling that also 
drove a lot of fundraising to causes like the convoy, that, you know, those people expect a result for that investment in the person who they think is leading their charge. So you can raise a lot of expectations and disappoint a lot of people. <laughs> so, But it does not always take the most amount of money to win a campaign, as we can see in every general election that we've had in the last couple of years where the Conservatives have out-fundraised the Liberals. Tim Powers, we have just a little bit more than a minute left. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm still carving the watermelon here because that's going to be more exciting. Uh, look, okay, he's a cash machine, right? He targets audiences exceptionally well, but he's going to have to have there, – there will be a reckoning at some point because his appeals that work now uh, to get cash and to uh, get support are based on anger. They're based on fear. Uh, that's probably going to continue, yes, for a little while. But if he wants to win the rest of the country, he's going to have to broaden his game plan. So uh, good for him now. Uh, and I'm sure he's thinking about that should he be the winner come September 10th. You, you, you think that you think that he'll, he will switch strategies like when it comes time to going up against Trudeau really quickly, Tim? I don't know if he'll switch strategies, but he's going to have to think about approach. And there's a difference between an approach and a strategy. Uh, can Pierre do that? Uh, we'll see. He likes to have tinfoil on his knuckles all the time. Sometimes the tinfoil uh, wilts and the knuckles get bloody and you don't get what you want. Tinfoil on Pierre Poiliev's knuckles, watermelon, sticky watermelon on your head. That was Tim Powers from chairman of Summa Strategies. You're just listening to there. We also got Lindsay Maskell, political consultant and former advisor to Premier Dalton McGuinty and David Mosscroft, from what I understand is how we pronounce it, columnist for The Washington Post and author of Too Dumb for Democracy. You are listening to The War Room on The Evan Solomon Show. I am Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan. We've got a lot coming up from our panel after the break. As the story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. And filling in for Evan is me, Tamara Cherry in Regina, Saskatchewan. But not just me, because it is Wednesday, and that means it is time for the War Room. We're into our second segment in which we convene some of the greatest minds from across the country, greatest political minds in particular. Today, joining us, Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data, Lindsay Maskell, Political Consultant and former advisor to Premier Dalton McGuinty, and David Mosscrop, columnist for The Washington Post and author of two Dumb for Democracy. Speaking of Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan has been under strain our healthcare system as uh, many, many, many healthcare systems have across the country, including Ontario. Well, Ontario's health minister broke weeks of silence on Tuesday afternoon to address growing hospital emergency room and intensive care unit closure. She spoke with CP24 in Toronto yesterday. It's always a very challenging decision when they have to shut down an emergency department, whether it's for four hours, one shift, or in some cases over the weekend. Um, I know that it is very challenging for them to do this and make those determinations. She went on to say this. However, I want to reassure people that Ontario Health is a major part of the plan to work with those local hospitals to make sure that they have the capacity and all of the options have been put on the table. 
Well, Jones called the closure of emergency departments very disturbing. She said the province has done a lot to address the issue. As proof, she pointed to the province's ongoing work with partnering health organizations. Uh, I'm going to start with you on this one, Lindsay Maskell, uh, given your, your, your former advisor to Premier Dalton McGuinty in Ontario. I mean, this is an issue that we're hearing a lot about now, but we heard a lot about during the pandemic, and we've heard a lot about it in, you know, for for years, decades before the pandemic. Do you think that this is coming to a head politically for the Ontario government? Will they pay a price for this, uh, this newly, well, re-elected government? Well, it's an interesting challenge. And, it, and you know, it's a fair point. We, I sort of felt like we were there before with emergency room closures. I remember having um, a cabinet minister's wife who was a doctor staffing an emergency room during an election to try to keep one open. And it was just, um, you know, distressing to communities when this happens. And it, and it did happen. It has happened many times before. But one of the things that we looked at was, you know, what is a strategy that it deals with what's clogging up emergency rooms and having, a, you know, a plan around cancer, heart, hip, knee surgeries, things like that that are, are clogging up emergency rooms. And, you know, this is a very different case because, of course, we have a significant human resource challenge right now that we're dealing with. But you have more than a million Ontarians waiting in surgical backlog, and that is definitely causing a, uh, a boiling pot for, uh, for the Minister of Health. It's also a PR issue in the sense that we're used to, through this pandemic uh, and just through an election of the government and elected officials being very available to us and being accountable. So I know she was just recently sworn in as a minister, as a minister but she was also standing next to Christine Elliott through many press conferences. So it, it raised the temperature a lot that we weren't hearing about what's the plan to start to make real changes that are going to be customer service based that are going to help us get through the backlog. And people are very sympathetic to the, to the strain on our healthcare professionals through this pandemic. So it's, uh, it's definitely a boiling point issue and it's about to come to a head, I'm sure. Tim Powers, uh, uh, CP24, they point out that while Jones has made several public appearances since she was appointed to her new role at the end of June, up until this point, she has not addressed the staffing crisis that has led to dozens of hospital closures. What do you make of her finally coming out and speaking on this issue now? And and were her words sufficient? Are any words from any politician right now sufficient? Does anybody believe them? Um, Lindsay touched on, I think, what is the key issue tomorrow. And until we're ready to talk about how systems all across the country need to be rejigged and need to deal with the realities of systems and manage people's expectations, anything we hear is just claptrap from any politician. And, you know, it's all about get the big check from Ottawa. Well, my goodness, it's uh, sure of a hell of a lot more than that. And we're equally culpable in all of this. We have to understand, as citizens of Ontario, Newfoundland, and Labrador, Saskatchewan, where have it, that you know the system as it has operated for decades needs to change and needs to transform. We don't push politicians hard enough on that. We like when they deliver money for us. We like when things seem to work. But we've had proof for decades now that we need overall system change. So great for Sylvie Jones to show up, but she's not adding anything substantive to the debate that's going to make a meaningful difference. David Moscrop, I mean, as somebody who writes a column for The Washington Post on the other side of the border, what do you make of how this conversation plays out in Canada? Because we've got very different healthcare systems in, in the two countries. 
I mean, I think it's, it is a universal law of Canadian politics that politicians are given more credit and the country is given more credit than it's often due yeah. because we are next door to the United States. And it's easy to say, well, look, I mean, we've got our problems, but we're not the United States. Well, the fact is that for millions of Americans, their system works extraordinarily well. Uh, it works extraordinarily poorly for millions, too. But for those for whom it works, it works very, very well. Uh, in this country, if you're trying to get into an emergency room, um, there's a very good chance that it works poorly for you no matter who you are. Uh, so the question is, how do we make sure that it works well for everyone, no matter who you are? And again, I, I you know, to echo Tim's point, that's not a discussion we're even having. Uh, we sort of skate by it, but we certainly need to. But I will mention this. The labor side deserves a close look, too. Mm-hmm. The question of, you know, who's staffing these places, who's not, and why are they leaving? And the fact is that folks have been underpaid in that, especially nurses um, in the health care system. Uh, and support staff for a very long time. They've been treated remarkably poorly. They haven't been given the support. So no wonder they're leaving, and, and we're left with a human resources catastrophe. But it's not just the pandemic. It's been a long time coming. Well, exactly, and and certainly the pandemic has has caused it to reach new heights. I mean, uh, there's reduced staffing, there's low morale, there's, a you know, overburdened um, emergency room, rooms right now. A couple weeks ago on this very show, I was speaking with a doctor uh, at the Children's Hospital in Montreal who was saying that they were at 193%, something around their capacity, because all these sick, all these kids are becoming sick, I guess, perhaps because they've had such little contact with people over the last couple of years. So if this isn't the boiling point that that is going to make us, you know, leap into those serious conversations, Tim, what, what is, what will be, what do you, what do you, what do you think would get us to that point? I think it's going to be sadly more tragedies and people hearing about the tragedies and uh, the burnout that uh, David talked about. Look, here's a great example right now, Tamara, in Newfoundland and Labrador, as in most of the rest of the country, we have wonderful refugees coming to Canada from the Ukraine. I know the story of a doctor in Ukraine. I was doing a talk show like you are. She called in. She said, I've been medically trained. Eight years I've worked in the field. If I want to practice in Newfoundland and Labrador that has a rural health care problem, can't get doctors, Fogo Island perhaps the most infamous of all of that, she's got to wait two to five years. That credentialing issue, as Lindsay knows, as David knows, has been a problem in this country for over a decade. You know, so if you can't get medical care in communities like that and you can solve it with credentialing, why don't you get to solving it? Because sadly, it's going to be deaths. It's going to be uh, shortages. It's going to be these things that force people to say, all right, all right, all right, we can't have it the way Tommy Douglas envisioned it. We better find out a way to make it work now. Lindsay, do you see this... uh moving into more of a federal conversation because healthcare is a provincial issue. It's easy to, to have these segmented conversations about Ontario or Saskatchewan or wherever else Quebec that's having these problems. But do you see this inching towards more of a federal topic of discussion? Well, I'd, I'd love to see it move more than just a mm-hmm. yearly ask of, you know, money and the feds say like, you know, give us, give us a plan. Uh, things do need to change, right? And I think uh, one of the things that would make a big difference is really just the innovation. I use a very simple analogy of, you know, we are, I'm, I come from a very typical Ontario family right now. My father is waiting for cardiac surgery, and I am waiting for ankle surgery to have a plate removed from my ankle. If you are like us, you are chasing the medical system, calling your doctor, trying to schedule. Yet we know 
um, you know, via, you know, technology like the bike system or Uber, where a million cars are at any point in time, but you don't know where you are in the healthcare system. So there would be some really interesting innovations and ideas that may cost a lot of money, but would actually move uh, yardsticks in terms of some progress. Bring us into the 21st century. Lindsay, I'm sorry, we've got it ended there. Tim Powers, Lindsay Maskell, David Mosscroft, thanks for joining us in the war room. Stay tuned for a conversation you won't want to miss coming up after the break. Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. And filling in for Evan today is me, Tamara Cherry. I'll be in this seat today, tomorrow, and next week as well. Turn up your radios, lean in, because this is a conversation that you're going to be hearing more and more about. And I want to hear your thoughts on it coming up in the next segment. This is a topic that has been discussed on this show before and one that is most definitely not going away. That is the question of whether the government should legalize access to psilocybin, more commonly known in the illicit world as magic mushrooms. A group of eight Canadians are now suing the federal government in a charter challenge that some observers believe could legalize psychedelics in Canada. There are currently three ways to access psilocybin in Canada. You can get a personal exemption from the Minister of Health, working with a doctor to obtain an authorization through Canada's special access program or by enrolling in a clinical trial. The plaintiffs in this suit argue that none of these pathways to the drug adequately serves the needs of patients, several of whom have terminal diagnoses, including our next guest, Thomas Hartle, who was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer in 2016. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for for taking the time to join us. Thanks. Uh, Very nice to be here. Now, you were the first person in Canada to legally consume psilocybin for medical purposes. That was in 2020. How difficult was it for you to access the drug then? Well, uh, when I first made my application for uh, the exemption in 2020, uh, it took 106 days for that to come through for me. And what were you um, what were you coping with during that 106 days of waiting? Well, uh, not not just in the 106 days, but uh, in, in the months prior to that as well. Uh, dealing with uh, end of life anxiety, of course, is something that is not uncommon for a lot of people who have a terminal diagnosis like myself. Um, this was a problem for me that was really uh, escalating over time. Um, I had had a number of people in my family uh, pass away in the prior six months to that. And uh, and so the the idea of my own mortality was really pressing on me pretty hard. Mm. And, and and so you waited that 106 days, and then what happened in, in your journey to this drug? Well, uh, after the 106 days, I, I actually received my initial exemption for that. And uh, I went through my, uh, my first psilocybin-assisted therapy session on August the 12th, and it was, without uh, a word of exaggeration, life-changing for me. Hmm. 
Describe for our listeners, because I know we've discussed this on the show before, but for anyone not familiar with it, what are these, what, how, how exactly does this help you? What benefit did you receive from the drug? And, and I, I, cause I understand it's through a sort of a therapy session in conjunction with the drug. Right. Yeah. Most definitely a, a number of therapy sessions. Um, it's a lot more than just, you know, you, you take some mushrooms and suddenly life is good. It, it doesn't work like that. Of course. Um, what the uh, the psychedelic actually does is make it a lot easier to be able to reach those places that are difficult for us to get at. Um, for me, it was, of course, my end of life distress and the idea that someday I wouldn't be there for my family when they need me. Um, very difficult for me to deal with at the time. Um, and prior to doing my psychedelic therapy session, I, I wouldn't have even been able to say those words without, uh, you know, breaking down emotionally. It was uh, something that was just a very difficult topic, of course. And, and as you can see, because I can talk about those things now, um, they are not nearly so hot and painful for me to deal with since I've had a chance to uh, to deal with them through that therapy. We're, we're listening to to the voice of Thomas Hartle. He is one of eight plaintiffs who have filed a charter cha- charter challenge against the government of Canada regarding patient access to psilocybin and psilocybin therapy. Thomas, I understand your medical exemption for the drug has now expired. What does that mean in terms of your access to it now? Well, unfortunately, uh, the the functional result is that I can't legally access the psilocybin. Um, in the way that I was able to when I had the exemption. And I applied for a renewal on that exemption in October of uh, last year. So I have been waiting close to a year for a response on that one. Unfortunately, um, since they brought in the SAP, the Special Access Program, they have not uh, granted or renewed any Section 56 exemptions. So um Health Canada and uh, the health minister are really trying to funnel people through the uh, special access program as the only real way that you can access the psilocybin therapy outside of a clinical trial. And uh, that's very difficult for for some people to find a doctor who can uh, assist them with that process. I can't imagine dealing with with the sort of anxiety that you've described uh, and and having to navigate through the system at the same time. I want to bring in the CEO of TherapCell. That's the BC-based nonprofit that has fundraised to cover legal fees in this charter challenge. His name is Spencer Hawkswell. And Spencer, what do you make of the hoops that patients like Thomas must jump through to access this form of therapy. Uh, these hoops are are just too much, and and the truth here is is that many of the people that are trying to access psilocybin uh, are suffering from uh, debilitating pain and mental illness, uh, sometimes terminal cancer and and things like cluster headaches, some of the worst conditions uh, that we know of. And to expect people to have to wait upwards of a year. Uh, or to have to jump through hoops that take them and their doctors sometimes weeks or months uh, to fill out forms. It's it's unacceptable, and and we need to make this access a little bit smoother for people and be more patient. Now, Thomas is one of eight plaintiffs involved in this uh, charter challenge, but um, Spencer, what sort of demand have you seen for this drug through your organization? So the organization, I mean, we've done a a lit review two years ago that was showing that there's about 2,800 new Canadians every year. Uh, that are given a 
terminal diagnosis uh, and who meet the mark for being treatment resistant. Uh, so really, that means they have no other option. Um, our organization itself has also received about 2,000 requests in the last two years um, for support through this SAP and Section 56 process. Um, and that's been with no advertising, too. So the demand is huge. And I think it's evident just in the fact that, you know, psilocybin's all over the place. It's it's on Netflix. Uh, if I'm here in Vancouver. They're selling it in stores openly. Mm. Um, it seems to be getting extremely popular. And without regulations or without some more formal mode of access, people are just going to continue to do it underground. Now, Spencer, the argument that you're making is is for uh, behind this charter challenge is similar to that that was used in, in the landmark court case that led to Canada's first medical cannabis laws. Can you tell me quickly, how are these two issues similar? And does that give you hope for a positive outcome in this case? Absolutely. And, and the case is actually designed and, and been supported by some of the exact same lawyers uh, that were taking part in the first Allard and Parker cases. This is the exact same thing. Um, and, and it's because of that, that, you know, both our team, the plaintiffs and the lawyers know, uh, that psilocybin access is going to be granted. It's just a matter of when and how, um, and it's unfortunate because in the case of both psilocybin earlier this year, um, and cannabis in the early two thousands, it was the minister of health who was able to just grant access for Canadians. Um, however, when the minister does not respond and does not push forward regulations, uh, under, under compassionate terms, um, we do have to rely on the courts to respond with justice. And that's what's likely going to happen here is that the courts are going to demand uh, that the Canadian charter be upheld, specifically uh, our rights to life, liberty and security of person. And essentially what that means is if there's no reason not to give people this medicine, for example, uh, you know, uh, safety concerns, um, then there's no reason they, that, that a doctor shouldn't be in charge of of that decision. Right. And that's uh, what we're arguing. Spencer, Spencer Hawkswell, CEO of, of Therapcell, Thomas Hartle, uh, one of the, well, the first Canadian to legally consume psilocybin for medical purposes and one of eight plaintiffs who have filed a charter challenge against the government of Canada. And I should say specifically uh, named in this lawsuit is the Minister of Health, Jean-Yves Duclos, uh, who, you know, hopefully listening to this segment today. Thank you both so much for your time today, for your insights. I wish you both the best of luck. I want to turn it over now to our listeners who no doubt have a lot of um, opinions on this. Please give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. Send us a text message, 71010. How important is this issue to you? What should the government be doing? That's coming up after the break. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. I'm not Evan Solomon. In fact, I'm Tamara Cherry, but I am very uh, fortunate to be sitting in for Evan Solomon this week and next. Uh, Also very grateful for the conversation that I just had uh, with two Canadian citizens right before the break. Uh, One of them is Thomas Hartle, the first Canadian to legally consume psilocybin for medical purposes. He's one of eight plaintiffs who have filed a charter challenge against the government of Canada regarding patient access to psilocybin and psilocybin therapy. And and we also heard from Spencer Hawkswell, who is the CEO of Therapcell, a BC-based nonprofit that has previously worked with each of the plaintiffs to help them secure legal access to psilocybin. Uh, I want to hear from you now with the with the short time that we have left in this 
in this program, 1-855-633-1010, 1-855-633-1010. Should access to psilocybin and psilocybin therapy be legal once and for all? There's already text messages coming in at 71010. Keep those coming as well. But certainly I want to hear from you on the phone lines, one 1010. You know, some observers of this case, including Spencer Hawkswell, who, who, as I mentioned, is the CEO of that BC-based nonprofit group behind this charter challenge, uh, believe that if, if this if this goes through, uh, if, if they win this challenge, that that it could mean uh, legalized psychedelics uh, for for Canadians. And, um, you know, it should be noted that the argument that they are using uh, in this charter challenge is is similar. It's, it's basically the same to that that was used in the landmark court case that led to Canada's first medical cannabis laws. Um, two very similar issues. And while this this has just been launched, uh, this this latest char- charter challenge, this lawsuit that specifically names the uh, minister, the federal minister of health, Jean Jean Yves Duclos. Um, it's possible that we could see a resolution to this in the coming weeks, in the next month. So I'm going to go over to you guys now. Tell me what you're thinking about this. Should access to psilocybin be uh, legal in Canada? 1-855-633-1010. Stephen, do we have the the clip ready yet from uh, Mr. Hartle to share? Okay, here here is uh, Thomas Hartle speaking with me just before the break about the anxiety that he felt. This is somebody who uh, years ago was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. The anxiety that he felt uh, thinking about, you know, his own mortality before taking this drug therapy. Uh, Dealing with uh, end of life anxiety, of course, is something that is not uncommon for a lot of people who have a terminal diagnosis like myself. This was a problem for me that was really uh, escalating over time. Um, I had had a number of people in my family uh, pass away in the prior six months to that. And uh, and so the the idea of my own mortality was really pressing on me pretty hard. And I can't imagine being faced with that sort of anxiety and having to jump through hoops to get access to a drug that could be so beneficial. And, and essentially uh, what we heard from Thomas was that after he finally got access and it was after jumping through a lot of hoops, waiting a very long time, it was life-changing for him. The fact that he could even join us on this radio show and discuss the fact that, that he's receiving what is, you know, end of life care, essentially, um, or, or, you know, with, with this cancer diagnosis, he, he knows that he's faced with his own mortality, his, uh, his, uh, exemption though, however, under the, for the psilocybin, access has expired, causing him to jump through even more hoops to access the drug. But the fact that he can talk to us about it shows how beneficial it has been for him. Uh, Oh, we had one call. I think that we just lost them. I'm going to go to the text board right now. Um, I should say first, so that I am absolutely of the mindset that drugs should all be legalized in Canada. We should be spending our time and we should be spending our tax dollars on solving the issues that are leading to to drug use when it comes to addiction issues and whatnot, you know, addressing people's trauma that often leads to to different drug issues in this country and and you know figuring out ways that we can use some of these now illegal drugs to help people like Thomas. So 
One person texting in from Toronto saying magic mushrooms are life-changing, best way to describe it, non-addictive, and it shouldn't be illegal. Uh, we have Ethan calling in from Toronto. Ethan, what are your thoughts on this? So I'm kind of two have minds Ethan? on it. Sorry, like, go ahead. Hi there. Uh, I sort of think that I'm two minds on it. My first mind is people are adults. They can make decisions for themselves. Legalize, you know, legalize everything, you know, buyer beware. But that said, I've seen a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my friends, they've become in the last 20 years, I'm a bit of a, a teetotaler. I don't like any of those things. I've seen a lot of my friends get really doughy and really dumb, uh, doing a lot of marijuana, a lot of alcohol, a lot of mushrooms. It may not be addictive, but it's a lifestyle. And, you know, I'm for it being legal, but at the same time, it's not going to make us the sharpest uh, society, in my opinion. All right, Ethan in Toronto, thanks so much for your for your thoughts on that. John, you're also coming from uh, calling from Toronto. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, I, de- I definitely think it uh, should be legalized. Whatever phrase you want to use, psychedelic drugs or uh, particular name of them, I think it's immoral for the government to deny people. Now, having said that, if you're in favor of legalizing drugs for that reason, you also should be in favor of legalizing private health care. It's also immoral for the government to deny people access to private health care. And so we should all have to have the same access. John, John, I'm sorry, we're having trouble hearing you. The line isn't the greatest, so I'm going to have to end it there. But thank you for sharing and thank you for calling in. Dave, another Torontonian calling in. What do you think about this? Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, Dave. Go ahead. Great. Yeah, I, I think it's unbelievable that the government would make it difficult for anyone experiencing a terminal diagnosis to have to jump through hoops to get access to a medicine that they can buy online, as the CEO mentioned there. I think it's crazy. Yeah. yeah and, and, of course, when people can buy things online, it's not regulated. Uh, you, I mean, not even necessarily buying online. Talk about being able to buy it on the street corner, not knowing what sorts of things these different drugs can be laced with. Sorry, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if you can buy it online and in stores and Netflix is paying for shows to be to talk about this, I, I just don't understand why the government would make it make it more difficult and force patients down these narrow pipelines to get access to these drugs. They should. uh yeah, they should allow doctors to be the gatekeepers for this. I've been reading a lot about it, and yeah, uh, I just I think it's crazy. I think they should be ashamed of themselves. Totally agree, Dave. Uh, thanks for calling. Just to drive home the point of the so, some of the hurdles that that people like uh, our guest in the last segment uh, had have to, had to go through. Guests like T- Thomas Hartle, who's one of the plaintiffs in this. Here's Spencer Hawkswell, who jo- also joined us in the last segment. He's the CEO of Therapcell, which is the BC-based nonprofit that has previously lurked, worked with each of the plaintiffs in this case to help them secure legal access. Here's Spencer talking about some of those hurdles. To expect people to have to wait upwards of a year uh, or to have to jump through hoops that take them and their doctors sometimes weeks or months uh, to fill out forms, it's it's unacceptable, and and we need to make this access a little bit smoother for people. And and you know what's interesting is I I just read a text message uh, from somebody who said that they were helped through their own anxiety uh, dealing with the death of their loved ones through this. So we're talking about people like Mr. Hartswell who is uh, facing his own mortality, Mr. Hartle rather. Uh, but this could help so many people in so many different ways. I'm absolutely a proponent of it. 
That is it for the show today. I will be back in this chair tomorrow. Thank you very much for listening. As always, you can listen uh, back to parts of the show that you may have missed or you want to hear again on the Evan Solomon Show podcast. I'm Chair Cherry in for Evan this week.